All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks very, very much for coming out in this torrential rain, our rare July rain. I appreciate you guys uh, braving the elements. In the last lecture, uh, you may remember I talked about the Chinese Constitution beginning with a historical passage. Um, and that is an entree into this evening's topic, uh, which is why is the past so great? This is question number five. And this is the beginning or entry into the Chinese tradition of philosophy, which is very different from the sort of Greco-Roman tradition of philosophy, which we're used to studying. Um, and so I want to try and give us some historical and geopolitical background to the Chinese environment in which their philosophy was developed, which will help you understand why the question that they asked, why was the past so great, works so much better than it would be if you were in Greece or in Rome or even if you were in Persia or Egypt. I mean, it's just a totally different world in which you're going to be able to develop your ideas when you're trying to comprehend uh, the same problems, they face the same problems, but they ask the question, uh-oh, did we lose power? Oh, mic died, mic died. All right, and we're back from the technical difficulties. So, uh, the Chinese tradition evolved in a totally different geopolitical setting, which means that it's, the way it responds to the same philosophical problems is really quite different. To wit, uh, in your handout there, I have a map for you. So let's, let's take a look at that map because it will be germane um, for the problems. So this is modern China um, there, as you can see. It's actually hard to look over the microphone. There we go. Um, and if you make a C, starting up in the north, where you see Beijing, essentially, and you draw a C that goes into about uh, Lao Tzu, a little bit west of there, and then swings down to Guangzhou. So he makes a sea there along the East China Sea and the South China Sea inland. So from Beijing, you go inland to Lao Tzu, and then you swing back around down to Nanning or, or Guangzhou. That is the heartland of China. And this is the area that Confucius would have been familiar with. And we're going to be talking about Confucius, of course. But then if you look at that same sea, to the north at the top, to the north of Beijing, um, you get the Manchuria of uh, the Manchurian, the Mon Manchurian Plain, not Manchurian, Mongolian Plain is up there. Um, no, I'm sorry, Manchurian Plain, that's the Manchurian Plain. I should make notes on this. And then as you go down, um, if you go west and south, you get the Gobi Desert. Uh, and then you get the Taklamakla Desert, Taklamakla Desert, pronunciation variable. Uh, then you get the um, Kunlun Mountain Range. And then you come all the way down and you hit the uh, Himalayas, or Himalayas, depending on how you want to say that. And what this means is that heartland of China is ringed by sort of a really big plain, some mountains, a, a small desert, a ridiculously huge desert, some more mountains, and then the Himalayas, which are like all the mountains piled on top of some more mountains so that you can't really do much there. And so geopolitically, that space, that, that, that area, that, that sea, if you look at it that way, um, is a sort of contained physical environment. Inside of there, you can travel around pretty easily. But if you want to cross the Gobi Desert, this is not easy. Uh, it is huge. It's, it's, it's unbelievably large and inhospitable. Uh, if you want to cross the Himalayas, you can. 
Um, but, but think of how, what a challenge this was back then. Um, so it's not that these barriers were impenetrable, they were just really, really daunting. And so you have this coherent landmass in which the Chinese civilization was born, grew, and flourished, and expanded to where it is today. It's important to note that this is the oldest contiguous, continuous civilization in world history. I mean, you could just pick a date, but it's at least, I mean, conservatively, 6,000 years of continuous history in the same place, with the same civilization just evolving. This is, this is unique in the world today. Nothing is even remotely this old uh, as the Chinese uh, civilized tradition. So this just goes all the way back. No matter how far you go back in Chinese history, there's further back you can go. So, think about, I talked about this with the Greek civilization. If you're in Greece, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the Peloponnesian area or the, or the Mediterranean Sea, all over the place, what you have is you have about, oh, 90 different inaccessible city-states, all divided by mountain ranges and, and uh, tiny coves and waterways, and they're completely separated. And then you have on one side Persia, which is just an endless expanse of possible places you could go. And then you have Egypt over there, which is huge. And so it was not in any way coherent or contiguous. It was all spread out, multifarious, and crazy. And so when they looked around the world and said, you know, what's going on, how should we think about it, almost immediately their thinking shows it was comparative. Those people do this, these people do that, we do this, those people on the other side of the mountain do that. And, the, and their, their philosophical tradition has that built into it. The Confucian tradition in particular, and the Chinese tradition in general, took a different approach. They looked and said, why was the past so great? And they looked at this coherent environment, which there was a dynasty called the Zhou Dynasty, which was sort of semi-mythical. It has some actual archaeological history. There was an actual Zhou Dynasty. But the way they looked at it was sort of semi-mythical. That there used to be this time when this coherent area, which I just talked about on the map, was unified and peaceful, and life was great. And if we can get back to that place, then life will be great again. See, if you're sitting in ancient Greece, that never you're not even, nobody was confused enough to think, oh, it used to be really organized and peaceful. It never was, total chaos all the way back. And the Persians have been, you know, the Persian history is just a series of disintegrations and then the Akkadians and the Hittites and the Mesopotamia and Babylon. I mean, it's just this mess all the way back. So there was no reason to imagine in either of those civilized traditions that there was some coherent past that you could plant your flag in. In China, it was perfectly reasonable to do this. Um, so what they did with Confucianism in particular is they looked to the past kind of in the way that we do science fiction. It's, you take sort of realistic concepts and extrapolate. We go to the future, they went to the past. And they said, okay, why was the past so great? And then what can we copy from it today so that we understand ourselves better and make a better future? 
And, and that is a question basically we almost never ask in the Western philosophical tradition, and certainly not contemporaneously. Today we know technology makes everything better all the time. Uh, this is a, apparently an inalterable fact of the universe, and so we look forward. We say tomorrow will be better than today. Confucius and the Chinese philosophers tended to look back and say the past was great, and if we can do that again, then we'll be as good as we used to be, which is a completely different psychological intellectual outlook. But similar to the Greeks, by the way, this is not totally dissimilar, but similar to the Greeks, when they asked the question, uh, sort of why is the past so great, again, part of the how should we live, it was a period of disintegration. So warring states, all the, the states had sort of split apart, the Zhou dynasty, sort of semi-mythical, uh, had fragmented, and everyone was like, this is no good. They were correct about this, right? They looked around and said, this pattern is not great. So how can we reunify, reorganize it? And just like the Greeks did, they did not come up with one answer. They came up with all the answers. This is the similarity. Um, and so I just wanted to give you a few, a hint of a few of them that they came up with before we jump into sort of the Confucian tradition, which came to dominate later. So one of legalism there, uh, the, the name is slightly misleading. They never called themselves legalists. Uh, and it's not legal like just the law. But the law was a big part of it, order was a big part of it, social harmony was a big part of it. Um, and, and, and their general feeling is that humans are, are, are horrible, and the only way to keep them in line is to threaten them, beat them, jail them, execute them, and that you need this really powerful hierarchical order or else chaos. And everybody knows chaos is bad. And so, right, if the price of not having chaos is this really rigid, unbelievably threatening, dangerous system, great, we'll go for it. Um, but a key to note that the core assumption there is that human beings are essentially bad. Uh, do we need more chairs? Are we out of chairs? Okay. We've got, we got a couple more chairs. Okay, good. Um, so then the next, uh, not the next historically, period, is Moism, which was probably Confucius' uh, main rival during the next couple of hundred years. And, and Moism is not totally different, but it's, you know, as I wrote, the general concept um, is that it's, I'm trying to always think of, Moism is sort of like a, a back to the earth sort of movement a little bit. You know, you, you, you save, you're frugal, luxury is bad. Um, you need communal love, that self-love or the love of individuals for each other throws off society. That you love your commune, it's not really communistic, but it does have these elements in there. Um, and that, that's how you build a society. Then you have the logicians, which are more or less like they sound. They were you know, trying to reason their way out of these problems. Logic is the most important thing. Reason, naming things correctly. They were big about how you call things and divide things. And they really made serious, they're, they're sort of maybe reflective of like the Aristotelian tradition and its, and its advances in logic. And sort of they had that notion going. Um, you had these sort of agriculturalist movements that were maybe somewhat akin to the, if you know, the physiocrats in France. Everyone says, oh, the physiocrats in France in the you know, 1700s had this breakthrough to understand that all wealth comes from the land. 
And that's great, except for the Chinese philosophers had worked this out about 2,000 years earlier, right? And many of the core physiocratic arguments that are it's made in France in the 1600s, 1700s um, were made uh, earlier, much earlier, thousands of years earlier in China. And so like with the Greeks, you get this confusing panoply of possibilities. And, and everyone is frustrated because chaos is bad, war is bad, and we, and we know we want something else. What else? And eh, always, right, that's the tricky bit. And so Confucius and others looked around and said, right, what in the past was really great? Where did that order that we imagine used to be there? Whether it was there or not, you know, that's your question, but they imagined that it used to be orderly. Where did it come from? Come, come from? And Confucius came up with a strange answer um, that ended up winning. And that's sort of why he's important. And then his follower, Mencius, of whom we have some quotes here. But it's hard to get a grasp on this. The key element in the Confucian tradition is essentially the extended family. Everything, everything, everything goes back to this notion of the family model. And what I think people tend to miss here is that this is the notion, this is the aristocratic values writ large on everybody in society. It's a very uh, almost revolutionary concept that is always couched as being very conservative. I'm backwards looking. These are the traditions that have always been there. We're just trying to get back to them and reintroduce them. But if you think as an aristocrat, the most important thing for you, because this is where your land and your titles and your history comes from, is from your family. The, the who's going to inherit the oldest son. Of course, again, women, sorry, we're a few thousand years off. Um, the oldest son is going to inherit. So how is your importance in society ranked if you're an aristocrat? Well, are you the first son who's going to inherit? Are you going to be the second son who inherits? Are you the wife of the second son, which makes you moderately important, but not as important as the wife of the first son, because the children of the wife of the first son, of course, are going to then inherit. And if the first son died, ooh, this is a big promotion for the wife of the second son, right? So everything is built on this, because that's how you maintain estates, that's how you keep your family history together. And I don't know why or where, and I've never read anything that suggested what happened, but Confucius apparently got this idea, hey, let's just make that rule apply for everyone. If we have orderly families that follow the rules, at every level of society, then society works great. Because that's what they had back then when everything was peaceful and orderly. And so even the notion of ruling, how does the emperor relate to the people, the way a father relates to a son. That analogy takes over for, from everything. So in, in, in America today, if you think, oh, what do we want our government to do? We want our government to protect us and, and, and uh, make the economy good. So that's a t this is a totally different ideal of government as opposed to, I want the government to be my father. That it has the responsibilities and is due the obligations of a family. And, and again, to take the aristocratic values, which are pretty much standard almost the world over because you have the same sorts of needs of keeping the lineage alive, making sure you have the claims to land, making sure the marriages produce heirs who can inherit the wealth and keep the whole system going. 
and then saying, you know what, that applies to the peasants. That applies to everyone. Everyone needs to embrace these systems that allow us to create harmony through familial bonding. And so this is, you know, it's crazy, really, on the face of it. And this is what everyone told Confucius when he wandered around um, the, the war, during, during the period of when he was alive where things were sort of, war was going on, uh, the states are, are struggling, and what leaders wanted was money and troops because they're at war. And so how do you keep your state together? You need money and troops. They want to kill people. They don't want to say, love them. Be a family, right? Do your duties, fulfill your obligations. It was a radical departure from sort of the utilitarian view that, that the leaders at the time were operating under. So he made very little headway then. His headway was about to show up over the next couple hundred years. So that's the first thing to note, though, that this is really a crazy idea. And so one answer he had is when he looked back, he said, why was the past so great? The past was so great because families were great. Families were coherent. Everyone knew their role. They knew what to do. They knew who the father was, the mother was. And everything was delineated, and your role was delineated. And, and one thing to note, we tend to think of this as being incredibly oppressive and very restricting. And like, oh yeah, the bastard who's in charge, the oldest male, just bosses everybody around and, ah, this is not the concept at all. This is not the Old Testament father figure, right? This is what our problem is. We have this sort of, you know, uh, old, the Old Testament guy leading the seven wives and 200 kids and like he kills some of them and sacrifices some of them and, you know, it's all just sort of very brutal. This is not the Chinese model at all. In the Chinese model, and this is some of the other principles that we'll look at, you owed obligations up and down. If you're the oldest male, you had all kinds of response, like stupid amounts of responsibility, unbelievable amounts of responsibility. It was probably better to be the second son, because you're moderately important, but you have like one-tenth of the obligation. So who's going to take care of mom and dad when they're old? Hey, oldest son. Second son doesn't have to do that. Oldest son has to do that. Who's going to tend the family grave? Hey, man, the oldest son, that is their number one duty. You're not only duty to your living parents, you have duties to your dead relatives. And then the duties run downhill as well. You don't just stand up there and sort of lord it over the, the lesser beings in your family. No, you have all these obligations that you have to fulfill. So as this generated through Chinese history, it often meant that successful oldest men were never at home. Because they're the ones that had to go off into the bureaucracy or in the military or in other service because their number one obligation is to make sure the family is doing well and that meant they were never in the family, well, that's too bad for them. You know, so it's this almost absentee figure sometimes. So, it, it's, again, it's not this Old Testament paterfamilias sort of model that we kind of think of. Of course, you know, there's bastards in every age and in every country. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a, the, the feel of this is completely and totally different than what I think we would imagine. Um, and so, as Confucius is developing this model, like I said, one is it's this attempt to write sort of uh, 
aristocratic values down the food chain. So no, your peasants were just dirt. And Confucius is saying, no, 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 wait. The same models that apply to the upper class apply to everyone. This is, like I said, this is actually revolutionary. He always said he was a conservative. He always said he was looking back. And there's a lot of truth to this. Many of the values that he espoused were sort of values that people generally felt comfortable with. But he took it to this next level and said, hey, no, the, the, everyone, the workers in the cities, the, the peasants on the land, the uh, imperial bureaucracy, all needs to meet the same rules, which is crazy, by the way. The, if you, again, if you compare it to the Greek system, everything they talk about is for the uh, landed elite, the few, the rich and the powerful. That's who they're talking to, that's what they're talking about, that's what they're interested in. They didn't really think, oh, you know, we want the peasants to spend a lot of time reflecting on the perfect sphere of truth that your soul will aspire. No, they didn't care about them. They weren't allowed in the city. Forget the slaves, slaves all over the place. But yeah, we don't want to talk about them because they don't matter. Even theoretically, they don't matter. Of course, China is an imperfect application of this model, but in theory, and then later in practice, it was a universal principle that applied from the emperor all the way down to the lowliest of peasants in the dirtiest of fields in the furthest corner of the empire. And it's, it's remarkable in the history of philosophy. But why? I want you to go back again to that geography. There is a coherent space there. It's small enough, I mean it's big, but it's small enough to be sort of comprehensible. And Confucius traveled all over it, not, you know, not perfectly all over it, but he traveled through much of it. So even at that time, we're talking about you know, between 5 and 400 BC, one person could sort of transit a significant amount of this, get a feel for the whole country, get a feel that there was a unified cultural linguistic tradition here, and go, yeah, we can do this. We're all one big family. There's, you just cannot do this in ancient Greece, because you can just take a boat across the water one day sail and meet the Persians who don't agree with you on anything. And then you can go the other way and meet the Egyptians. And what the hell are they doing? It's not what we're doing. They don't agree with us on anything. Either. We're not one big happy family. It's, it, no, and it's just impossible to even imagine that. So they didn't. They didn't think of this coherent social possibility, which then became, of course, later a, a complete reality. Um, so th that, again, so there's this radical element that is introduced in part because the, the, the geography allows you to actually achieve the dream of a coherent physical space ruled by a coherent social order because it is comprehensible. So that's one. Uh, two, if you look at the values that are then espoused, here's some quotes. These are from Mencius, by the way. It's important to note that Confucius wrote some stuff and Mencius, Mencius explained everything. So there's an argument to be made that what we mean by Confucianism is really Mencianism because it's, it's really his sort of extrapolations that stuck. I mean, it, it's the Confucian classics, but sort of understood within the context of, of Mencius. Um, so the first quote there is, the sense of compassion is the beginning of benevolence, the sense of shame the beginning of righteousness, the sense of modesty the beginning of decorum, the sense of right and wrong the beginning of wisdom. Man possesses these four beginnings just as he possesses four limbs. Anyone possessing these four and saying that they cannot do what is required of him is abasing himself. Okay. 
What are the core elements of a human? Wow, compassion, benevolence, righteousness, modesty, decorum, wisdom. Right? All of us have within us the elements necessary to be truly remarkable people. It's a core tenet, incredibly human. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory that says we love humans. They're great. Again, the legalists are like, humans are crap. Uh, tradition, Christian tradition, original sin, these people need to be threatened and then punished, maybe rewarded. But we're going to threaten them a lot before any possible reward. Right? Confucianism says no. Everybody has the four qualities necessary for wisdom, benevolence, compassion to become, and those are the things that you need to be the best possible person. Plato does not think this. Aristotle certainly does not think this. You know, Epicurus maybe a little bit, but ignored pretty much most people, except for he did allow women in. Again, points for Epicurus on that one. Um, but, but, but this to totalizing view to say everyone, every single person has this capacity, and hence, if you do not fulfill this capacity, you're abasing yourself. You misunderstand yourself. You think less of yourself than you should, because everyone has this ability. Everyone has this capacity. Um, so this is core core element of a truly profound um, sort of revolution in the understanding of what a human is and how they should be treated and looked at. Because again, the history is uh, early, well. The history is much more like the legalists: beat people, keep them in line. In fact, there was a famous revolution in China that was started because the. Uh, a government official who was leading a gang of prisoners to some city, I forget which city now, um, was going to be late. And the penalty for being late with your prisoners was to be killed. And, and plus they were going to kill all the prisoners. So the guy just stopped and unshackled or whatever everybody and sat them all down in a circle and said, well, here's the deal. We're either all going to die or we're going to rebel. And he pulled it off. He overthrew the government. But see, that's not good. You don't want to have a, a system that gives those sorts of incentives. <laughs> you know, where you're like, you know, because everyone's just sort of facing, you know, scrop, jaywalk, die, right? Whatever you do, you die. And then so they're like, hey, well, we may as well revolt because we're just going to die anyway. Um, and so that sort of model of the human being as something that needs to be punched and threatened all the time is potentially not all that constructive. And it turned out, yeah, it wasn't all that constructive. Um, another example of this, again from Minchus, treat with reverence due to the age the elders in your own family, so that those in the families of others shall be similarly treated. Treat with kindness due to the youth, the young, in your own family, so that those in the families of others shall be similarly treated. Do this, and the kingdom may be made to go round in your palm. It is said in the book of poetry, his example acted on his wife, extended to his brethren, and was felt by all the clans and states. So that, that concept that if you, you have the capacity, if you fulfill the capacity, it's not just about you fulfilling it. It's not even just about you creating within your family, which is the most important place, this sense. That will ripple out. Everyone will feel that and go, oh, that's good. I should do that. It's a, it's a model. It's a living uh, feeding organism that includes everybody and, and magically somehow grows and will create the order that we all long for. 
And this goes again all the way up to the emperor. The emperor has to do things right because if he does things wrong, that throws everybody off. You see, it's a reciprocal notion. And so one thing that Chinese emperors did was spend all their time trying to perform rights. They're heavily hedged in by an incredible burden of having to perform all these rites and rituals and duties because you do the right things in the right ways and then everything is right. You do the wrong things, the emperor does the wrong things, that's really bad. The minister, that's pretty bad. The father, that's bad, you know, all the way down. So the more power you have, it's not like, oh, I've got more power, I can do what I want. It's like, yes, and ooh, now you have responsibilities. The, these, these elaborate increases of, of authority come with elaborate increases of, of things that you have to do to make yourself worthy of that authority. And so it, 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 it always has that nature. Um, and so Confucius and Confucianism starts with that argument that humans are pretty good, all of us can be excellent, that excellence is not um, some magic trait inherited like in Socrates after a hundred generations of being reborn and your soul going up and coming down and going up and coming down, finally you might gain wisdom that allows you to do something. It's never quite clear what, by the way. Um, in this tradition, everybody can do it pretty much theoretically in the world today. By the way, even theoretically women, they weren't big on women, but it's theoretically possible. They did actually, some, some philosophers from this time did recognize like, hey, Everyone should be able to achieve this, even women. Um, and so that, you know, that concept then permeates the whole tradition of Chinese history. But again, the looking back. Why the looking back? Ah, now we have, like I talked about last time, this coherent narrative that can underpin this. We didn't just create this new philosophical tradition today. It is simply a rebirth of what was going on and had this unnatural and unfortunate break. Now we're continuing it. That's why stuff is so great now. And then if stuff goes wrong, then you think, oh, we've got to go back. So we all know, um, you know the, the Declaration of Independence. right? We're going to break. It's the Revolutionary War. We're starting something new. They said, no, we're starting something old. Is it See how weird that is? Let's restart that old thing that used to work so great. It's not new. It's as if the founding fathers of the American Revolution said, you know, this king is sort of dubious, but that last king was fabulous. Let's go back to that previous king and get things the way it was. That, yeah, well, they didn't say that. They said, totally new, something different, this is going to be amazing, hang on for the ride. So that, just that outlook. Um, and, and by the way, this, this, uh, this, this notion of continuity, of the wholeness of the world, uh, China is, calls itself the Middle Kingdom because it was the middle of the universe. Everything revolved around China. And if you look at the map, you can see why. Again, it has these immense natural barriers. The ocean on, well, sort of on one side, but it goes all the way, a couple of different seas there. Deserts, huge mountains on a couple of sides. I mean, basically, it's a vast bowl, or several connected bowls, depending on how accurate you want to be about this. 
And so they saw themselves this way. I was trying to think of an example of this, but one of my, my favorite books is Shen Fu's Six Chapters of a Floating Life, which was written, you know, 1800 years after Confucius, well, 1900 years after Confucius lived. No, 2000 years after Confucius lived, actually. Wow, now I do math. So a little over 2000 years after Confucius lived, um, he traveled much the same places that Confucius had traveled. And in his memoir of his life, it, he had a section called The Joys of Traveling, and he said, well, I've been everywhere in the world except these two Chinese cities, or a couple of small Chinese cities he never reached. And he, and he, and he meant I had been everywhere in the world, because I traveled all over China, which was, of course, everywhere in the world. Now, they knew, of course, there were other places in the world, but what they meant is everywhere in the world that mattered. That sure, there's barbarians over there and some peoples off there, and you know there's these traders that show up occasionally on our coast from God knows where, but they're they're nothing. They're nobody. They're, a, they don't speak Chinese. Blow number one. Um, they don't know I anything. They're uncivilized, and if you're uncivilized, you don't matter. So I've been everywhere in the world. It's a startling claim. People, by the way, say this today. I've been to every country in the world, which would be amazing achievement and kind of impressive. But that's not like being everywhere in the world. That's being in a small part of a whole bunch of different countries in the world. You know, that, that, but yeah, he thought, hey, I've seen it all, done it, been there. So for 2,000 years, that has held true. That vision of China as the world was still going strong when Shen Fu writes in the 1700s. That's right, and remember that date. It's right around the 1700s, might be a little later. Um, but you know, that incredible power of a coherent state out of which everything flows gave it impetus to this, to this narrative. <clears throat> so, why is the past so great? One, it gives us that underpinning narrative that allows us to look back to everything. And two, very important, why is the past so great? Because you can fill in all the blanks for yourself. They had no idea what was going on in the Zhou Dynasty. They had a vague notion, but only the most vague of notions. And so it's sort of like you ever read historical fiction, right? They sort of, it varies in its historicality and its fictionality. This would be very heavily towards the fictionality of it. That notion that, oh, A, that they assumed it was great, uh, at least orderly, and then B, how did this greatness come from? It's important to remember that they did have a sense of deity. It, oh my, I mean, it's so humanistic that they rarely invoke this, this theories of religion. It's always hard to tell in Confucianism. But they did have this notion that there is a deity and that nature has an order and that the order is harmonious and that if you understand nature rightly and the deity rightly, then you will be able to understand the world rightly and that one of the things they used to do was get it right. So it's, it's a retroactive scientific investigation. <laughs> it, it really is this weird, we would never think of doing this. Uh, again, the, uh, an example I kind of think of is, um, they imagined that they were digging up a, an advanced spaceship, right? If we found a crashed spaceship that had crash landed a thousand years ago, we dug it up but it had advanced civilization or advanced technology, we would be like, right, we're digging up the past, but it's gonna give us the future. So, I mean, Confucius really did do this, and other people compiled records and studies of the religious rites, 
um, you know, the famous, you know, Analects, the, 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 the Spring Autumn Chronicles, as an attempt to see how did they do things? When did they sacrifice? When did they pray? What order did they do them in? Who did they send out? How did they live? How did they run their court? Because they thought if they could get that sort of technology, that spiritual technology, if that even makes, does that even make sense? That might be a stupid combination of words. Uh, but we'll go with spiritual technology. If I can get the spiritual technology right, then we'll bring order to, to the universe, and then we can live well again. So it not just gives you a continuing narrative in which to understand the life that you're living, it also gives you the capacity to know better how to contact the gods, how to contact nature. And for the longest time I thought, that is so strange and so weird. And then, in the last 20 years, we've had this amazing return to this concept. Because we're like, wow, we're messing up the planet. And people are asking, well, how did we used to live that we didn't do so much damage to the planet? What can we go back and learn from the past that we can import into the present so that we can live in greater harmony with our environment and thus live better, more nobly, with more compassion? And I'm like, oh, that's it. That's exact. I mean, precisely. I cannot emphasize how much this is exactly the concept that they were laboring under. This notion of we can bring those to the present and improve the present. And notice how unnatural this is for us. This is not our standard. What we're learning, we're starting to come to grips with this. And go, you know, some of the stuff we've been doing with technology and modern methods may not be that helpful. Potentially, the least little bit dangerous and damaging and that maybe we should stop doing them and do something else. And that something else, even today, we tend to look very much forward. So if, if there's any environmental problem, of course, the first thing we do is we think of a technological solution for it. But we're starting to say, do things like, well, what if we just waste less? What if we use less? What if we make smaller houses? Why do our houses get so big and then maybe if we made them smaller, that would be better. Because they used to be smaller, we could do that again. It seems simple, but for us it's crazy. For the Chinese, this is what they've been doing for several thousand years. Look back. Look back. Of course, it's not a perfect system. But it does give you this capacity to continually try to import what works from the past and carry it with you. And one way to understand the Western tradition, certainly since the post-Reformation, is an attempt to just offload everything that was happened before yesterday. Yesterday noon is the distant, dark, forgotten past. Yesterday evening was vaguely remembered by weird historian people. And today is where it's at, but we're mostly interested in tomorrow. Right? We're not actually interested in today. We're like, but tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And so we just throw away everything that we have and continually make new, uh, which is, has its own magic and disorientation and good and bad. But the other tradition, which again, I think we're rediscovering now for various uh, obvious reasons with the environment and, and other cultural issues, is that, hey, what if we continually look at the past and ask, what is worth carrying forward? What is it that we had in the Magic Joe Dynasty, 
and the next dynasty and the next dynasty and the next dynasty for several thousand years, that is worth carrying with us into the future, that will make our future better. And as far as I can tell, this is a question we essentially never ask. We don't say, bless you, why was the past so great? We might say things like, the only equivalent I come in was like, oh, the greatest generation, right? Which is it's sort of this puerile view of history. It's just terrible. But it's this idea that there was this one generation that was really great, and then everything was crap before that, and then it was crap after that. Um, now, the Chinese has a version of that, I guess, where you could say, oh, it was great then, but what they meant was it was great then, so now how do we carry that into the present? And how do we keep going without the future? We don't say, oh, that was the greatest generation. What made them great, and how do we reproduce that? We're like, oh, that was a one-off. Those people who were genetically superior for some reason, for a period of time, that's ill-defined, um, and they did stuff that we're not going to talk about, and then that was great, but so much for that. right? Sort of like this weird boxed off, set aside, nothing to do with us. Because they were great, which means, of course, by comparison, we're sorry, and apparently there's nothing we can do about it. The argument would be, hey, they were a great generation. Let's study them, take what worked from them, and reproduce it as best we can today so that we have a coherent civilization that's stable and the good stuff flows forward. Not crazy. I would just, just throw out there. This is not like the craziest idea anybody came up with. But what was revolutionary about it, um, as I mentioned, is one, the fact that it spreads to everybody. We're going to even bring the peasants with us. We might even help them. Um, and, and that it's going to have a method for evolving. So a third crucial element here is education. A and this emphasis, I mentioned this before, and I do a lecture on Confucius earlier, but I do have to touch on this again. Um, the emphasis on education is so pronounced in uh, the Confucius tradition that it's, if you look in the ancient world, it is amazing. He could be practically a modern person. You know, one of these horrible politicians who always talks about education. Um, you know, they, they, this, he's just like, look, where do you begin? You have to begin by educating people. Why? Because people have all those capacities, and if you help them, those capacities will grow and flower and bloom, and you'll have great people. By the way, it wasn't so that they could get jobs in STEM fields. It was so you would have great people. <laughs> And there's this crazy idea that Confucius had that if you have a country filled with great people, your people will be, your country will be really great. And if you have a country full of second-rate people, your country will be second-rate. So help the people. Educate them. Number one thing you can do for the people is educate them. Uh, and so that argument was made in about 400 BC and has been going strong for 2,400 years. Fast forward to today, and people say, well, why are the Chinese so good in, in school? Like, well, 2,400 years of practice. <laughs> a really intense cultural emphasis on the power of education. By the way, not all Chinese are good at school, of course, that's just ridiculous. But culturally, they have this just, ah, unbelievably powerful and long-running educational tradition. So one way to think of it is, is trying to get some sort of Jefferson um, in the, just before the American Revolution was trying to get some education in Virginia. And his system of education was probably less liberal than what Confucius was talking about 
in 400 BC. I mean, just, it's just, it's just an so it's, you know, and he couldn't get it passed, by the way. They weren't going to fall for this crap, right? Because what a waste of time. What a waste of time you have there, Jefferson. Why would you, you know, be promoting this radical theory of educating one one-hundredth of one-tenth of the population at, at the government expense? No one's going to fall for that. Um, and, and, you know, that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, so that tradition is very long. It's not long with us. In fact, I keep waiting for it to start. Um, but, the, 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 uh, uh, but that, you know, so it has this power. But notice, it's part of this is because your theory of the person is that the person is basically good. There's a reason to educate people because they have the capacity. And if you help them and educate them, they can express the capacity. And so again, this notion, then of course, how do you educate people? You now know the answer to this, even though I wasn't going to give you answers. You know the answers when the context of the question, which is, how did they use to educate them, <laughs> right? Well, in theory, right, they could make this up. Here's all the things they used to do. Here's the poems they used to read. Here's the analects of Confucius, which of course were taken from him talking about the past. Here's a study of the past, an actual chronicle of, of how government used to be. And so all of this material, the rites and the songs and the poems were imported, and they say, here's the past, here's what they do, here's how they thought, here's, here's how to think about it. And if you teach people today how to do that, then they'll be good people, because it's from the past. Um, I don't even know if we teach history anymore. I think we relabeled it social science, which I think is, because everything is a science, of course. All good things are sciences. So history, bad. Social science, good, even though nobody knows what it is, and it's certainly not a science. Um, but that, you know, this, this concept of, oh, we want to just get rid of all that. What's the past for? Who needs to know about the past? There's nothing, there's nothing back there that's worth studying. They didn't have good STEM stuff 100 years ago. We've got it now, right? Contemporary, the future. You want to study the future. We know this. You want to study the future. Because if you study what's coming, good things happen to you. You become successful, and the future is bright for you. If you don't... Well, you're just mired in some sort of ignorance of the dark ages, because that's what the past is, a whole bunch of ignorant people who didn't have good cell phones. Um, right? We know this. It just, it just it's poor people suffered in benighted horribleness. So that concept of the person that is good, that can be educated by the past, again, creates this social coherence. It creates a narrative of civilization that people can embrace and then carry with them. Another example by this, if you, by this way, is if you want to learn a difficult language to write and be literate in, Chinese is a good choice. It's relatively simple grammatically, uh, and it's just it's just wrong to try and read it, right? Compared to an alphabetic system, it has a very high lift. Um, so how do you get such an incredible rate of literacy? They really do have an extraordinary rate of literacy and a high rate of literacy. Not just literate people, but really literate people in a system that's hard to be literate. Again, you invest in it. You believe in it. You believe in literate people. And so you create them. And again, not a simple language in any way. Well, grammatically simple. Um, I wish we had those grammar rules, or lack of grammar rules. Um, and so the revolution is on, on multiple fronts there. Um, so if, if you then look out beyond China, 
how far the Confucian system traveled? Answer, the Koreans sort of forced to adopt it on the surface. Japan inherited some through long-running contact with China, but it has turned out to be not that impressively exportable. And, and I think one of the reasons is because, A, they don't have the past. If you don't share a past, then you can't refer to the past and then say, that's how you do things. And you say, in our past, we weren't even Chinese. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, it makes it tricky when they say, look to the great past of China, and you're like, we're not Chinese. Right? So that doesn't resonate the way you would want it to resonate. Um, also, everybody else, basically, unless you're in, like, Australia, uh, has contact with other people. And so when somebody comes to your country and says, we've got this great system, and we're the middle of the universe, and there is nothing else, and you go, yeah, but there's people over there, and they have a different system, and they think they're pretty great. It's, it has less power and resonance. But if you're in China, in this heartland of China, shoot, you know, like I said, Shen Fu traveled the whole world without leaving the borders of China. And, and that's, the, that's how they felt about it, the middle kingdom. We're the middle of everything. Everything revolves around us. And it's actually a viable argument. That's the amazing thing. Right up until, you know, the 1800s, it becomes increasingly less viable, you know, once steamships and such start rolling into your ports, and you're like, okay, maybe we're not in the middle of everything, and then, you know, things roll along. But that is the central claim. This is the power of the Confucius question of why was the past so great. Um, and so as we move on from there, think about it for ourselves. Right? What in the past do we have that we've sort of left behind that might be worth carrying forward, might be worth digging up and taking a second look at? You know, where, where can we find something in our own traditions, in our own histories, that we go, well, you know, that sort of probably got hopelessly thrown aside for no really apparent good reason. But maybe those modes of thinking or modes of living or uh, outlooks or uh, activities or ways of relating to individuals or people might actually enhance our lives, make our world better, more noble, more peaceful. Um, and then finally, I think it's, it's helpful to look at the Confucian values which I've, I've listed here, although the translations here are always dubious. So Ren, which is the great untranslatable, untranslatable most important one, you know, benevolence, humaneness, human-heartedness, if anything else, that's really the key concept. So again, if you compare it with the Greek tradition, you have, you know, bravery, nobility, wisdom, um, you know, ataraxia, sense of peace, the agon, a sense of struggle and power and striving, benevolence, humaneness, justice, knowledge, integrity. It's a whole different sense, right? It's a whole, you know, sense of like, hey, if we just can be peaceful with each other, we're good to go. We don't have a lot of border problems. I mean, they had enough border problems, but not, like, again, they weren't being invaded by Persia. It was not nightmarish like the Greek world or the Roman world. Of course, the Greeks and the Romans went out and caused enough trouble too, right? So it wasn't just the one side of them being invaded. They were busy also going out and invading other people. And so, but that notion of, hey, if we can just settle amongst ourselves, 
we can create this bubble of pretty peaceful existence, something like the Pax Romana, except for they did it over and over again for these long stretches, these big, long dynasties in China were sort of internal Pax Romanas. It was peaceful. People could flourish. And they could flourish, so then you don't have to have this vicious sort of kill or be killed theory of government or life, and they could emphasize the kinds of things that they wanted to, like you know, righteousness, justice, proper right, by the way, which is doing the right thing in the right ways to the right people at the right time. Um, knowledge, again, education being central, et integrity, loyalty, filial piety, um, contingency, that's a terrible translation, I, I shouldn't have copied that one. Righteousness, um, Xi is sort of something like a harmonious adaptation or something like that. It's, a, it's the capacity to change as necessary while maintaining a, a, a sense of your continuousness with your surroundings. And so when we, when we think about values like this, they just sound silly and soft-hearted, right? I mean, let's face it, this is not, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, maximize your return, you need a big military, you've got to have a police force, keep the people in line, keep those immigrants out, you know, prisons, and uh, it just doesn't, it's like benevolence, right? Righteousness, justice, filial piety, compassion, as the central driving concerns of your civilization. And the more you can cultivate them, Confucius and then Mencius and then the continuing generations argued, the better your civilization will be. And I don't think this is necessarily a crazy idea, by the way. I think there's, you know, potentially something there. But notice, even if you talked about these today, I would say people would say, well, those are old-fashioned values. Right? These are these are values, right? You know, filial piety. What's up with that? We don't we'll have, we'll have none of that. Um, you know, uh, benevolence and compassion, human-heartedness, right? I, I cannot even hardly think of any instances recently in the broader cultural narrative or the news where these sorts of like, well, let's chat about benevolence. You know, was this a moment of human-heartedness? How could the, 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 the piety, of, the filial piety of this environment have been improved? But that, as far as I can tell, that language is just gone, right? I mean, I'm not making this up. I'm not imagining it, right? I'm looking for it. I never see it. And it's shocking when you read the classics uh, from Confucius and go, holy crap. I mean, we, we've just, th th that's just not there. As opposed to the press of there, there, here, here, there. Do it, do it, do it. You know, think about this. Think about piety. Think about righteousness. Think about being an upright person, having integrity doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. Um, and that kind of narrative uh, that the Chinese tradition has been telling is just completely different. And as I mentioned, and hence the, the question for this lecture, is you know, this is why you look back and you say, why was the past so great? So you can find the good things, incorporate them with you, and carry them with you in the future. And then from the last lecture, this will help you create a narrative that allows you to maintain coherence even in a world that changes around you constantly. That's the, that's the power of that question. Again, it's not an answer, because it doesn't tell you what you should find and what you should carry with you, but it's a question that really, although it's completely contrary to our whole tradition, is actually tremendously powerful in allowing us to, to, to find, carry forward, and create coherence, uh, again, in a world subject to dramatic change.
Uh, so thank you very much. Why is the path so great?